Hey, Ryan. Hey, Pete. The penguins are revolting. Are they? Yeah, yeah, yeah. We've been threatened. About what? Well, a user who shall remain nameless has left a video on our Reddit site demanding communism during the Antarctic during the Triassic. Have a listen to this. We are the communist penguins of Antarctica and we demand communism in Antarctica during the Triassic. If the next episode is not communism in the Triassic, we will steal your pancreas. Oh, my God. So I've got to ask you, Ryan, everything's at stake here. Have you got the episode ready? Yes, I have. Oh, result. Okay, should we begin? Let's do it now. History happened everywhere. Hello, my name is Pete Goddard, and I'm here in the HHE studio with the shape-shifting alien to my Kurt Russell. It's Mr. Ryan Weir. I am the thing. You are the thing. You're a thing, certainly. I wouldn't give you the definite <laughs> article necessarily. Now, normally we say last episode the Dursleiter gave us, but about a hundred years ago, the Dursleiter <laughs> gave us communism in the Antarctic during the Triassic period. Ryan, you've delayed and delayed. Are you ready to tell us about communism in the Antarctic during the Triassic? You better believe it, comrades. I am here with the long-anticipated episode, and we are finally going to head south, way south, down to the coldest, iciest, and most alien place on planet Earth. We're going to travel back to a time before the dinosaurs when strange and mysterious creatures survived in the remnants of an apocalyptic wasteland. We'll dig down to meet one of the bulldog walrus pig lizards of the past, find out what a skull and bones has to do with the Jolly Roger, and learn why the future has wings. And somehow, I'm going to tie this all together with a heavy dose of political and economic ideology which advocates for a classless system in which the means of production of communally owned and private property is severely curtailed. Welcome to the land of penguins, the seventh continent, and the end of the earth. Welcome to Antarctica! Well, Ryan, I have to say you had me at pig, dog, lizard, walrus, moose, whatever (laughs) that was. I'm very excited. So, what have you got? Where are we first? What is the Antarctic? Well, it's not really got an official name, Pete, because it's a continent, not a country. And it's not claimed by any country either, so it's just sort of commonly referred to as Antarctica or the Antarctic continent. Uh, If you look at a globe of the world, the white bit on top is the Arctic, and the white bit at the bottom is the Antarctic. And that's where we're looking at. I'm guessing the white denotes snowiness. And a lot of ice. We'll get to that in a second. It's the home of the South Pole, which means that if you go to Antarctica and you decide you want to keep going south, you're going to actually start heading north. Just southy as you go. Super south. 100% south. (laughs) (laughs) So yes, it is surrounded by the Southern Ocean, and it is the fifth largest continent in the world. It covers an area of about 14 million square kilometres. That's 5.4 million square miles. It's 1.4 times the size of Europe, or roughly 26 Frances. Oh, that's sizable. It's a big old place. I'm curious about the population, I must admit. Yeah, well, look, unlike the North Pole, which is a floating pile of ice, Antarctica has land underneath its ice. And there is a lot of ice, as we just said. 98% of the entire landmass is ice. And it's so thick, it has average depths of up to about 2 kilometres, 1.2 miles deep. 
but actually in some places it reaches up to four kilometres, that's two and a half miles at its deepest. About the depth of 5,280 penguins all stacked on top of each other. I was wondering what that was in gin and tonics. Is. <laughs> I'll leave you to work that one out yourself. <laughs> yeah. Uh, so yeah, so Antarctica, it is the coldest, windiest and the driest continent on Earth. It is so hostile to life that scientists consider it to be the closest thing to Mars on Earth. Ooh, good practice for future Marsonauts. And it is the largest desert in the world. Some areas of the Antarctic, known as the dry valleys, aptly named because they've not seen rain for the last two million years. Wow, you, you don't think of it as a desert, do you? If you say, I was trapped in the desert, your mind does not go to the polar regions by any means. Yeah, I always imagine that if you just like caught some rain in a jam jar or something and they took it there and dropped it on the land, it would like expand like a big sponge. <laughs> <laughs> On a good day, though, Pete, the temperature is around 10.4 degrees Fahrenheit. That's minus 12 degrees Celsius. That's a good day. But on bad days, it can reach as low as minus 130 degrees Fahrenheit or minus 90 degrees Celsius, uh, which is said to be so cold that it will instantaneously give frostbite to any exposed skin or more dangerously freeze a banana so solid you can use it as a hammer. <laughs> but uh, I'm curious as to why... <laughs> you're using your bananas as a hammer how did you get to that as an illustration of coldness it's one of those facts that you pick up along your research uh, (laughs) a a banana would be a suitable hammer in that kind of a temperature it just goes so solid when all you've got is a banana every problem looks like a nail as they say (laughs) (laughs) Uh, but the ice continent isn't barren though Pete in fact it is the unlikely home to various wildlife you can see penguins there you can see seals there you can see birds whales and of course everyone's favorite algae yeah i mean who wouldn't want a (laughs) safari to see the various elusive algae that you don't get at home (laughs) in terms of humans though pete antarctica isn't considered home to anyone it's broadly governed by a treaty of around 54 different countries all working towards promoting scientific research and restricting military activity it's algae based research by any chance (laughs) (laughs) yeah but that doesn't mean it's not inhabited scientists do descend there they live there in little research stations during the summer months and that's That's where you'll find sort of a total population across the continent of around about 5,000 people. That's much more than I was expecting, actually. You were picturing two people in a hut, weren't you? Pretty much, yeah. (laughs) A tent at best. (laughs) But it's not going to surprise you to learn that there is no capital city. But if there were to be one, it would most likely be McMurdo Station, an American base, which is the largest scientific research facility on the continent. English and Russian are the most commonly spoken languages. The flag is a blue background with a plain white map of the continent on it. So Antarctica doesn't have a national animal, but it wouldn't be hard to make a case for the emperor penguin. We've all seen that, right? I thought you were going for algae. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, No, the emperor penguin is the tallest and heaviest of all the penguin species. And it is a bird which can dive up to 500 metres underwater. Oh, wow. That's pretty impressive. I do like a penguin. I like a well-dressed creature and uh, to be in a tuxedo at all times can only be respected super cute and the little babies anyway there is no national anthem but instead i composed one and i call it <laughs> and i call it hymn of the southern expanse okay it's a good name right <laughs> oh it's a good name i'm yeah. just slightly nervous about what's really going on here and in making it i pulled together some sounds of nature as a uh, symphony to capture the magical and mysterious spirit of the place and it sounds a little something 
like this. I feel I'm getting sci-fi vibes from this. Bit Doctor Who-ish, isn't it? It is a little bit. That was exactly where I was going. Okay, so there are three Antarctic sounds here, Pete. See if you can recognise them. Oh, that's the Emperor Penguin right there. That is exactly the Emperor Penguin. That is the vocalisation of an Emperor Penguin colony as they look after their eggs. Can I guess for my second sound, howling freezing wind? That's exactly right, yes. These are the chilling whistles of catapatic winds, which can howl across the landscape at up to 200 miles an hour. And for my final, I'm going to say it's algae giving birth. <laughs> God, I wish I'd found the sounds of algae. <laughs> We can stop it there if you like. <laughs> this is giving me a bit of anxiety, actually. <laughs> so there you go. That is Hymn of the Southern Expanse, the national anthem, the unofficial, <laughs> unofficial anthem yes. of Antarctica. And uh, yes, so the third sound there, though, the really weird one, the one you didn't get, is the sound of seals. These are Weddell seals, and they are calling to each other as they swim underneath an ice sheet. So their noise is sort of bouncing off the ice, and it makes oh, a super that's weird sort of noise. Sonicky, sort of drumbeaty noise. Space. Oh, I wonder what that sound. was. Boo! Sort of noise. Yeah, yeah, that was awesome. Super creepy. That's the sci-fi part, wasn't it? It was indeed. Oh well, I have to say, well done, Ryan. I was expecting something terrible. Antarctica facts. Of course, <laughs> I would expect nothing less. Penguins projectile poop, Pete. Oh, I'm in. <laughs> Tell yeah. me more. So, when a penguin needs to poop, it stands in place, it raises its tail, and it shoots its feces out behind it. It's a behaviour that scientists believe helps to keep their nest clean, but presumably not their neighbours. <laughs> <laughs> Who cares? Yeah. Yeah. Ooh, don't live next but, door to a penguin is what I'm getting. But the fun fact here is, is that the force they use to eject the feces is strong enough to send it flying over a metre away, which is the rectal pressure, roughly half a kilogram per square centimetre, about six PSI. And if you can't picture what that is, it's roughly the equivalent of the pressure that's built up in a shaken bottle of champagne. Wow. Wow. Okay, so now in my head, I've got Antarctic scientists on a, their day off, each grabbing a penguin and yeah. firing feces at each other <laughs> with a penguin tucked under the arm. That might yeah. be just me, though. That, maybe like that's not what they do. Like super <laughs> Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> and it turns out that if humans had the same rectal pressure as a penguin, we could hit a dartboard from 12 feet away. I think I've achieved that, actually, <laughs> on a particularly difficult uh, morning. <laughs> there are some Mexican foods that make me do exactly that, yeah. Uh, so, next fact, Pete. There is no national dish, but if there was one, it would probably be pemmican. Pelican? <laughs> no, not pelican. Pemmican. Pemmican. Pemmican, yeah. It's the number one food on expeditions in the Antarctic, and it is referred to as the ultimate survival food. It is lightweight, long-lasting, and it's served in a bar so it doesn't need cooking. It's made from dried meat, fruit, and tallow, which is like rendered animal fat, melted down animal fat, and it provides 2,500 calories a bar. And given that average Antarctic explorers need to consume around about 5,000 calories a day, grab a couple of bars, stick those in your pocket, off you go into the Antarctic, and you're going to be fine. Right. Doesn't sound amazing, though, rendered fat. Well, and... maybe, you should, uh, maybe you should try some, because I've made you some pemmican to try. 
Oh, good. <laughs> uh, how do you like your rendered fat? I like it uh, as, as the animal. minimal as possible. <laughs> <laughs> All right, so let's let's give it a go. Here you go. Just uh, pass this over. I'm going to get myself some. Right, I'm going to suggest you don't eat all of that, Pete, unless you want a big old tummy. Yeah, I've already got one of those. So I don't need to make it any worse. Thank you very much. What's it smell like? What's it look like? Well, it looks like a poo. That's what it looks like, Ryan. Let's <laughs> let's make no bones about it. It looks a lot like a poo. Yeah. Mine's got a lot of fat on top. It looks like it might be chocolatey. Well, that's the meat, I think, more than anything. The meat. The, dr- the dried meat, yeah. So basically you get dehydrated meat... And you blend it with some nuts and some dried fruit. Everything's got to be dry, otherwise it'll just go rancid quickly. And uh, yeah, you blend it all up so it's very small. And then you mix it with rendered fat. Mix it all together. That's it. That's pemmican. This is oh, not terrible, actually. Mm. I, the biggest problem is my brain's Ooh. telling me it's going to be chocolatey and it's actually quite savoury. I, I was ready to hate this. Mm-hmm. But I've got to say... It's not terrible. It's okay. It's not nice, but it's not terrible. When you go hiking next, you can take some with you. It's better that than pelican anyway. You say that, but pelican might be delicious. We don't know. Hey, Pete. Hey, Ryan. Do you want to meet my penguin? Your penguin? Yeah, he's really settling in well. Wait, you have a penguin in your apartment? Yeah, I adopted him from the zoo. Ryan, when you adopt an animal, you're supposed to pay the money and leave them at the zoo. You don't get to take them home. Well, that's not what the zookeeper said. He said I was lucky to have the last one. So now you own a penguin? Yeah. Ryan, that is not a penguin. It's just a chicken with a bow tie on. Yeah, I said that. But the zookeeper said it was a rare genetic mutation. Ryan, what zoo was this at exactly? Croydon Zoo. Croydon doesn't have a zoo. Sure it does. You know the Rose and Crown? Pub, yeah. Well, the zookeeper runs a mobile zoo in the car park from the back of his van and I got it from him. So you're saying you bought a penguin from the back of a van in a pub car park in Croydon? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I got a polar bear too. Ah! Ryan, you're an idiot. Okay, Ryan, please, whilst I enjoy the ongoing sensations that this pemmican has given me, uh, some history, history of the Antarctic, please. I've got some history for you. Lay it on me. So Antarctica, as we know it today, i.e. down south and covered in lots of ice, began forming around 34 million years ago. During this time, a drop in carbon dioxide levels means that global temperatures cool and an ice sheet starts to form over the land. Over time, glaciers form and the ice sheet gets wider and thicker until around 14 million years ago, when it finally sort of meets the form that we would recognise today. It's unclear when early man first made themselves known. In fact, the presence of humanity in Antarctica is pretty vague up until almost super recently. It wouldn't um, be one of your first ports of call, would it, <laughs> as you were travelling and finding somewhere to live? No, but some people do believe that ancient civilizations living tens of thousands of years ago might have been capable of reaching the continent during the last ice age, when the continent was warmer than it is today. So instead, we look to records instead, and we know that ancient Greek philosopher Aristotle, you'll have heard of him. Love Aristotle. He spent time observing symmetry and balance in nature. And during some of these musings, he hypothesised that if there was a large landmass in the north, there must be one in the southern hemisphere too to balance it out. So other Greek scholars, such as Ptolemy... Yeah, Ptolemy about it. Him of the maps, yeah. Well, he started to refer to the... uh, I've just understood what you just said. (laughs) 
<laughs> he started to refer to this proposed southern landmass as Terra Australis or Terra Australis Incognita, the unknown southern land. It's a cool time in the past, wasn't it? When they were just yeah. land that you didn't know. You just could be anything could, out there. Could have been anything out there. Yeah, we know too much now. Yeah. Anyway. Some landmass we know all about. It's full of scientists. Absolutely riddled with them. Yeah, we have space instead. So suck it, Ptolemy. Anyway, this name stuck around for centuries. Everyone was calling it Terra Australis, this mysterious potential southern land. But anyway, the first somewhat reliable source of an actual human presence in Antarctica comes from oral Polynesian tales, specifically from the Maori groups, uh, who claim that 1,400 years ago, a Polynesian explorer called Hui Te Rangoria was heading with his crew into Antarctic waters aboard a vessel named Te Livi Oatea. There is almost nothing I wouldn't believe about Polynesian explorers and where they got to, so so I'm totally open-minded to this. Makes you wonder, right? Now, after that, we have to look much closer to our time period to find humans there, with some claiming that American seal hunter, John Davis, he was the first to step onto the ice in 1821. But in terms of official records, the man attributed with being the first guy there is a guy called James Weddle, who reached Terra Australis on February 2nd, 1823. Now, following Weddell's visit, a number of other nations sent expeditions to explore the South, and it's in 1890 when the first map appears with the name Antarctica. Now, it's believed to have been created by a Scottish cartographer, a guy called George Bartholomew. George Bartholomew! <laughs> <laughs> okay, I understand he's Scottish now. Thank you for that clarification. Yeah. And the name Antarctica he used because it comes from the Greek word Antarktikos, meaning opposite to the Arctic or opposite to the north. Not an Arctic for ants. What is this, an Arctic for ants? <laughs> <laughs> Anyway, the name stuck, and between 1895 and 1917, we enter the heroic age of Antarctic exploration. This is the period that most people know. It's all those bold adventures to the southern ice cap with explorers like... Amundsen. Amundsen, Shackleton, Scott. Scott, exactly, leading these dramatic expeditions to the South Pole. The Antarctic Treaty, signed in 1959, first by 12 countries and now over 50, which means that today Antarctica is a place of scientific research. Serves up notable discoveries, including the detection of neutrinos, a testbed for future space exploration, missions to Mars, and is a uh, frozen store of evidence for past climate change. In fact, in a world today impacted by climate disaster, Antarctica plays a crucial role in scientific efforts to help reverse these effects. So. While Antarctica may appear a barren landscape with zero cultural richness or human history, it is, in fact, an untouched beauty with a scientific importance that makes sure it will remain a fascinating and crucial part of our planet's future for a long time to come. Well, that was excellent, Ryan. That was very interesting. And I'm, I know very little about the Antarctic. So that was absolutely riveting. Thank you very much. I feel like all of that would have been better if we'd have had Morgan Freeman narrating it. Everything's better if Morgan Freeman narrates it, though. I would have him narrate my life if possible. It'd be very short as well. He might do it. Yeah. He was a good man. The best of us. In this golden age of exploration... Captain Oates will be remembered as the greatest polar explorer of our time. His memory shall go on with us, and as a token of this memory, I give his satchel to you, Toby, a symbol of his great adventures. Oh, oh thank you, my friend. And his reading glasses, a keepsake of his foresight and vision of a better future, a gift for you. 
Harry. I shall treasure them, always. His wallet? Well, I'll just keep hold of that. You know, sentimental purposes. Can I have his sleeping bag? Uh, yeah, sure. Anyone taking his parker? What about his books? Can I have those? I, I want his sled. Oh, I want his sled. Where's his gentleman? Gentleman. I want his magnifying gentleman. glasses. Gentlemen, what is going on here? Captain Oates, back from the dead. The dead? Yes, you, you said you were going outside and maybe some time. And? Well, we just thought, you know. What, that I was going outside to die? Well, I mean... Oh, bloody hell, guys. I was going to the toilet. And after all that pemmican, I am a little, you know, backed up. It was going to take a while. That's all I meant. Oh, bloody hell. Oh. Oh, oh yeah, makes sense. Can I keep the boots, though? <laughs> Well, this is all very well, Ryan. I'm now versed in where we are. I'm versed in how we got here and the history of the place. But you have a task, and that task is communism in the Antarctic. I can tell you some more facts if you like. No, let's go on with communism. I'm not sure I covered off the histories more sufficiently. Maybe I can just... uh... Communism in the Antarctic, in the Triassic. All right, all right, all right. Do it. Fine. I want to hear it. Fine. All right. As you rightly point out, Peter, there are two other components to this week's episode. Communism and the Triassic. Natural bedfellows, I think we can agree. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. So before we start proper, let's get some background to both of those, shall we? Yes. So let's start with communism. What is communism? Was the first Google I did. (laughs) (laughs) Well, look, it starts in the 1800s. It is a period of global expansion, industrialization, urbanization. Everything is happening at a level not ever seen before. A large number of governments, institutions and corporations are engaged in a system of politics that puts property rights and the interests of business owners first. Laws, regulations, policies, they're all being created to encourage a growing divide between the wealthy and the working class. Now, this system, known as the capitalist system, caused a lot of people to feel like maybe they were just cogs in a machine, unjustly working to make other people super wealthy. That sounds crazy. Sound familiar? That sounds like a, I can't even imagine a situation where I'm just grinding away day in, day out to end wealth and another person entirely. Yeah, That would well, be crazy. Indeed. Well, they were starting to feel that way. <laughs> and so inevitably, dissatisfaction kicks in and it leads to social unrest and even violence. People were looking for an alternative, fairer system. And that's where communism emerges, in the form of a manifesto written in 1848 by two visionary thinkers, Karl Marx and Friedrich Engels. Now, in this manifesto, they describe the creation of a society where class is eliminated, where private property is abolished, and where resources, wealth and power are shared among the people equally. Not against it so far. Right. Well, it is a bold and controversial theory at the time, and the manifesto resonates with a huge number of embittered people who see communism as a movement that they can get behind to make their lives better. So debates are held, revolutions take place, and the course of the 20th century changes shape as the politics of a growing number of nations, particularly in the East, start to embrace the communist ideology. 
Now, Pete, unfortunately, the best laid schemes of mice and men gang aft aglay. They do say that, especially in Scotland. <laughs> yeah, and nation leaders see this as an opportunity to use state ownership as a means of controlling the people and the economy. And so many nations start to become authoritarian regimes, suppressing individual freedoms, stifling dissent and concentrating power in the hands of the few, undermining the rule of law. Pretty much the opposite of what they were hoping for, I'm imagining. You'd think, wouldn't you? That's not what we, this is not what we set out for, and yet here we are. And here we are. So most notably, the Soviet Union, under the leadership of Joseph Stalin and the People's Republic of China under Mao Zedong. Both nations isolating themselves from the rest of the world and inflicting horrendous human rights abuses on their people. In the West, where countries like the United States continue to embrace capitalism, they start to see communism as an existential threat, the poster child for anti-freedom and anti-democratic thought. And so, throughout the 20th century, tensions increase to a point where literal full-scale warfare becomes a distinct reality. Fortunately, this never materialises, and instead just a Cold War rages between the United States and the Soviet Union for 46 years, stopping only in 1991 with the collapse of the Soviet Union, and a desire pretty much from both sides for tensions to sort of ease out a little bit. Now, today, only a few countries remain officially communist, places like China, Cuba, Vietnam and Laos. But even while they claim to be a communist, they have had to modify the ideology to incorporate some capitalist elements. After all, the practicalities of living in a purely communist ideal in a modern world has just proven too difficult. That being said, the socialist tenets of communism have never really disappeared, particularly those that aspire to equality and social justice. In a world where 2,000 billionaires control much of the global wealth and inequality and exploitation remain common complaints among people living in a constant state of either economic survival or poverty, the ideals behind communism remain alluring. So are you or have you ever been a communist, Ryan? Okay. <laughs> I'll just move on. Anyway, so that is communism and it didn't happen in the Triassic. Do we know that for sure? <laughs> I've done a lot of research and I can tell you quite confidently it did not happen during the Triassic. Well, tell me but, more about the Triassic maybe and then we can uh, decide whether or not this was a communist paradise or otherwise. Okay, well, here we go. So what and when was the Triassic? Well, it's a 50 million year period of time between 252 and 201 million years ago. It's sandwiched between the end of the Permian and the start of the Jurassic periods. It's a time when the map of the world looked very different, with all of Earth's landmasses huddled together in one supercontinent called Pangaea. It was hot, it was dry, there was a lot of deserts. And the reason for that was because the Triassic begins immediately after a catastrophic extinction event which marked the end of the Permian. Now, this event, Pete, known as the Permian-Triassic Extinction Event, or The Great Dying, which is a brilliant name, was, <laughs> yeah, was so bad that it is widely considered to be the most severe extinction event in all of Earth's history. It eliminated around 96% of all marine species, 70% of land animals, and many families of insects just disappearing entirely. So the first 10 million years of the Triassic is really a time of recovery. New life and remaining ecosystems trying to just start afresh after almost total devastation. And we see new creatures emerge, evolve, 
and diversify. On land, we see the first true mammals and the dinosaurs appear, and in the oceans, the first modern-looking fish. We see pterosaurs flapping their wings and taking to the air. We see conifers start to grow and forests appearing. Life finds a way, until suddenly, just as it started, so it ends. Because 50 million years after the Triassic begins, yet another extinction event hits, and the slate is wiped clean again, making way for the Jurassic period, when dinosaurs went on to rule the Earth. Yeah, it's classic, isn't it? You're just getting comfortable after 50 million years, and then suddenly a wipeout event happens. It happens to me all the time. Yeah, that's when you need to make sure that you've got your uh, mass extinction insurance in place. Yeah, yeah, that's, uh, it comes quite reasonably. I've got uh, mass extinction insurance currently, and uh, mm-hmm. honestly, it's only a few pennies a week currently. I don't know what <laughs> how they're planning on paying out, should it occur. <laughs> <laughs> okay, Mr. and Mrs. Triassic, if you'd just like to follow me through into Pangea. Oh, this is nice. Well, there's a lot more wasteland than I was expecting. Well, I'd call that plenty of room for a family to evolve and grow. You're a young couple. I'm sure you'll need space for all your little species. <laughs> well, we do want a big family, yes. Then this is perfect for you both. This is a family globe. Oh, so this includes the whole planet. Absolutely. It is a two-hemisphere. What, the oceans too? Yes, of course. And it's centrally heated with hot and cold running Gulf streams. Oh, that is good. Uh, There is one thing, though. It does have a bit of a smell. Smell, really? Well, yes, it's um, quite distinctive. Oh, the carcasses. Yes, yes. That'll be the previous owners. Oh, is that right? Yes, yes. But don't worry, they'll decay eventually. And as we like to tell all our clients, today's carcasses are tomorrow's fertile soil. (laughs) I suppose it is. Yes. Yes, but seriously, this is a perfect opportunity for a young epoch like yourself. Well, I mean, we're... (laughs) Not actually an epoch. I mean, we're more of a period, really. No, I could have sworn you were an epoch. Now, look, I do have to warn you that we have had interest from the Jurassic, and they are very keen to make an offer. Oh, really? Yes, that's right. Opportunities like this don't come around very often, and you have to snap them up when you can. Well, uh, would the owner be interested, perhaps, in an offer that's less than the asking price? Oh, I'm not sure. It's a very competitive property. The owner will probably insist on full price. It's just I'm not sure about buying a property in such a high extinction area. Oh, come now. What are the chances of something like that happening again in the next, I don't know, 50 million years? Well, when you put it like that, uh, all right. uh, Well, on that basis, we're in. Very good, sir. I'll go and draw up the paperwork right away. Okay, Pete, so should we get to the meat of the episode? I think we should eventually get to the meat of the episode, yes. I'm still curious as to how you're going to pull this together. (laughs) Should we get to the pemmican of the episode? Indeed, give me a (laughs) munch on your mulched up meat and nut bar. (laughs) Said no one ever. (laughs) (laughs) All right, here we go. Right. Communism in Antarctica during the Triassic. Definitely a thing. Fanfare. (laughs) Right. Well, look, it might not surprise you to learn that uh, I might have needed some help with this episode. (laughs) (laughs) And who better than a paleobiologist and paleoontologist who has conducted field research on three separate occasions in Antarctica to study the fossil record of the Permian and the Triassic. And I'll let my expert introduce himself, shall I? Nice. 
I'm Roger Smith. I'm a geologist and a paleontologist and uh, currently a distinguished professor at the University of Witwatersrand. Most of my research career has been spent on the, the rocks and the fossils of the Permian and the Triassic periods. And the last 20 years or so, I've been studying a mass extinction event that took place 252 million years ago, known as the End Permian Mass Extinction. And it's well established now that this was the largest mass extinction that has been recorded to date. And as such, then it is really uh, important that we understand how the extinction occurred, what happened then, as well as how animals and plants recovered after that extinction. So that's really been the main research thrust for the latter part of my career. All right. I feel like we're in safe hands. This seems like a gentleman who knows what he's doing, which compared yeah. to you is uh, very encouraging. <laughs> yeah, it feels like we have an episode now, doesn't it? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yes, this was Professor Roger Smith from the Evolutionary Studies Institute at Wits University in Johannesburg, South Africa. He is a fellow of the Royal Society of South Africa and the Paleontological Society of London. He's also a member of the Antarctic Scientific Committee. He's undertaken three summer expeditions to Antarctica. He's made several important discoveries and is now considered a leading expert on the fossil record of early tetrapods and the evolution of archosauromorphs, the ancestors of mammals, reptiles and birds. So I think it's fair to say he's a bit of an expert. He knows what he's doing for sure. Yeah. Now, I didn't channel my inner McCarthy and ask Professor Smith if he was a communist. <laughs> uh, so over the rest of this episode, I'm just going to have to fill in that particular part of the episode myself. And I'm going to do that by linking some of the remarkable things that Professor Smith has to tell us with communism. And we're going to start that after this. Sketch or something, I don't know. Maybe. Yeah, I something. Know. I know, just us doing this, muttering. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Okay, Pete. So I started my conversation with Professor Smith by asking him what we might see if we were to travel to Antarctica 250 million years ago. And well, this is what he had to say. All right, here we go. Antarctica, at the beginning of the uh, Triassic period, was attached to Africa, South America, India, and Australia. So there we had this large landmass, which at that time was also attached to the northern continents, which had also coalesced into the supercontinent of Pangaea. So the southern continent was known as Gondwana, and the northern continent as Laurasia. But if we went down into the southern part of Gondwana at that time, that is down into the Antarctic section of it, it didn't have an ice cap at that time. So this was a period when the Earth was considerably sort of warmer. The entire globe was in a warmer clime, if you like. So in Antarctica at that time, just after the mass extinction, the most common animal that you would have seen would be a Lystrosaurus. It means shovel-nosed lizard or shovel-nosed reptile, if you like. And it has a particular adaptation to be able to survive this sort of global drying that occurred at that time, the global drought, if you like. And uh, so it not only survived it, but became quite successful afterwards in the aftermath of the mass extinction. 
All right. I have been described as shovel-nosed in the past, so I've got sympathy with this creature. (laughs) (laughs) So, yeah, as uh, Professor Smith there points out, following the most severe extinction event in Earth's history, the most common land animal on Earth is the Lystrosaurus. This was a creature so common that it was estimated to account for roughly 90% of all vertebrates on land. I worked out that if cows were to make up the same proportion of land vertebrates today, we'd be having 270 billion cows on the planet. Wow. Yeah. But also making burgers much more socially acceptable. (laughs) That's true, yeah. Uh, But what did Lystrosaurus look like? Well, Professor Smith said that Lystrosaurus means shovel-nosed lizard or shovel-nosed reptile, and that's pretty accurate because Lystrosaurus is best described as a creature that looks like a sort of a cross between a bulldog, a pig, a walrus, and a lizard. On average, it was roughly the same size as a domestic dog, so around about half a metre in length, uh, you know, two feet. Uh, but fossils have been found which show that it could grow up to somewhere around two and a half metres in length, eight feet long. Uh, that's about the same size as an American alligator or an African lion. I still fancy my chances. It's just shovel nose. What else has he got in by way of weaponry? Well, it had a stout, bulky, barrel-shaped body with a stubby tail and legs which sort of spread out slightly to the side to help carry the weight of its body, which hung down low against the ground like a crocodile. It had a rough and scaly hide, like a lizard, but its most notable feature was its head, which, as the name suggests, was big and blocky, but had two tusks that curved downwards like a walrus, but with a short snout and a beak-like mouth that it used to bite at low-lying vegetation, things like plants and roots. I'm getting a Komodo dragon vibe with a toucan beak glued on the front. And some walrus (laughs) tusks yammed in there as well. It had a small brain, and that implies a limited range of behaviour. And that is where we find our link with communism. Because both are relatively simple systems. Communism, with a handful of basic principles showing how society should be organised, and Lystrosaurus with its need to eat, sleep, reproduce, and survive. But the similarities don't end there, Pete, because both are characterised by a lack of hierarchy. Lystrosaurus flourished likely due to communal burrowing, so sleeping with all the others to keep warm, sharing grazing grounds, and a general lack of sort of competition. And communism similarly worked best through collective ownership for the benefit of all. Lystrosaurus was able to demonstrate an incredible ability to survive in harsh environments, just like communism did, enduring the worst forms of adversity and repression, such as the brutal civil war in 1923, the devastation of the Second World War, World War and, of course, later the long and draining impacts of the Cold War. Lystrosaurus, like communism, forged a home for themselves, adapting to their environments and becoming the dominant force in their environment. And if you needed even more of a similarity between the two, may I point you to the fact that the walrus-like face of Lystrosaurus looks an awful lot like the face of Joseph Stalin. You've won me over completely. What kind of noise do you think a Lystrosaurus made? Uh, do you want to see a picture of it first and then make the noise? Yeah, show me the picture. Oh, right. Yeah, that that's from Star Wars, clearly. <laughs> Super alien looking, right? Yeah, for sure. Um, I'm going to say that would go... He sounds inquisitive. Yeah, that's what I was just thinking. <laughs> oh, he's, he's looking into things, this guy. <laughs> he's got an open mind. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, 
Okay, so having established uh, Professor Smith's credentials, I then asked him about how he got involved in working in Antarctica. And this is what he had to say. The Antpermian mass extinction became a focus of my attention because it, it really is a geological and a biological event that is poorly understood and needs good, solid evidence. And because I'm a field-oriented paleontologist, in other words, all my raw data, all my information comes from seeing the real fossil in the rock in which it was buried millions of years ago. Once it's out and into the collections in the museum, then it loses a lot of that primary information, which is all about the environment in which the animal lived and all about what happened between death and burial, between um, the animal becoming uh, a carcass and it getting finally fossilized. So that's a, a study known as taphonomy. It's the study of natural death and burial, and that's what uh, I specialize in. So when I was working in the Karoo here, that's the in the, in the central part of South Africa, uh, there are many, many uh, f uh, fossils of these these therapsids, these mammal-like reptiles. And uh, one of our paleontologists known as James Kitching, a very, very famous in, in our field, he uh, was invited to Antarctica with the American uh, group. And when he went there, he found the same fossils that he had found in the Karoo. So that link between the Karoo of South Africa and the fossils in the transantarctic mountains of Antarctica became a totally fascinating topic of research is that how did this exactly the same species exist in Antarctica as in the main Karoo Basin? And firstly, how did they colonize that part of Gondwana? And secondly, how did those species survive in three months of darkness. So uh, the, the question is, how do these animals adapt to the three months of darkness in Antarctica, even in that Triassic time? So there you go. So uh, Professor Smith described some fascinating fossils that he found in Antarctica, belonging to a species that found a way of enduring three months of darkness. Now, of course, it wasn't entirely pitch black during those months. The night sky would have provided some light, right? Uh, but what would a creature living in the darkness of an Antarctic winter 250 million years ago have seen if it looked up into the sky? Well, on the face of it, it would have looked pretty similar, right? Moon, stars, comets, shooting stars, alien spaceships, pretty much, you know, all the stuff we're familiar the with usual. seeing today. The usual. The usual, exactly. But if you look a little closer, you'll see some things were a little bit different. First off, the moon was closer to the Earth, not dramatically close, but enough that it would have appeared a little bit larger. The Milky Way was visible, but it had a different arrangement of stars, and that's because the position of the Earth and the distance of stars relative to the Earth has changed. And that's not including the fact that many of the stars we see today just didn't even exist then. They've been created since then. But there were some stars which would have been present in the night sky then and can still be seen today. These are stars which can shine for trillions of years. They are known as lower mass red dwarfs, otherwise known as red stars. Now, the red star also happens to be, Pete, I don't know if you knew this. <laughs> Tell me, Ryan. <laughs> it also happens to be the symbol of revolutionary and socialist movements. Good Lord. <laughs> yeah. What a link. <laughs> <laughs> 
So it was first adopted by communists in 1917. And to them, the red represented the blood of the workers struggling against oppression. And the five points of the star depicted the fingers of a worker's hand. The red star was used everywhere, from posters to flags, even on uniforms. It was the widespread symbol of communism. The uh, Dutch beer company Heineken. You'll have had a Heineken in the past, Pete, I'm sure. I have indeed. Yeah, well, they changed their Red Star logo to white after the World War II because they didn't want it plastered with a communist symbol <laughs> <laughs> and only returned it to red when the USSR collapsed in 1991. Wow, I'm sure Hammer and Sickle Ale had similar problems. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And so, yeah, the Red Star is still used today, but is more generally used to signify leftist principles rather than sort of pure communism. Uh, but it is that historical link with authoritarian regimes, which means that the red star as a symbol remains powerfully emotive, particularly with Eastern European countries who see it as so controversial that it's actually banned in many of those countries. Ooh. Either way, the Red Star remains an iconic symbol, and it has journeyed through time and politics from the age of Listosaurus to the age of socialism. Oh, that was a nice link. <laughs> but I need a wee. I'll be right back. Excellent link, Ryan. What else do you have for me in the Triassic? Okay, so if you had an opportunity to ask a question to Professor Smith, what would it be and why would it be what's it like living and working in Antarctica? I think it would be that because I think that's what's coming up now. <laughs> yeah, well, I did ask him that and this is what he had to say. <laughs> I was invited to the American base at McMurdo with a team of American paleontologists and there we get the beginning of our training and you get all your extreme cold weather gear and then they fly you in a C-130 transporter plane to McMurdo and you land on the uh, frozen sea ice there and from there take a um, snowmobile bus, if you like, in, into McMurdo. And from McMurdo then the training continues where you have to do a lot of safety training, a lot of traverse uh, climbing and learn how to make a snow house and how to set up a radios and and uh, all the sort of survival type stuff. And then you are qualified to go into what they call deep deployment. That is where they take you in a helicopter or a fixed wing plane up onto the plateau ice and up onto the mountains. So from there you set up a small camp, just a small tent at the base of the mountain and, and use a helicopter to go up and down the uh, the mountain to get to the outcrops. The rock shelves that uh, make up that mountain were laid down in valleys at the time uh, 252 million years ago. But mountain building events, collisions of continents uh, has, has pushed them up on end. So they are now mountains. But we have to get to the tops of these mountains mainly because the bottom of the mountains is all covered in snow and ice. So only in summer does it expose enough of the rock up there. That's why we have to be on the tops of the mountains. But nevertheless, it rarely goes above freezing, but it's generally minus 10 to minus 20. And the wind chill factor is easily another 10 degrees. So if you are stuck in uh, in full wind, even though the sun is blazing down, it's just, uh, it is 
it's extremely cold. After a while, you just don't notice. In, in fact, you stop complaining. But nevertheless, once you're there, you've got a short window. The, the helicopter rotation is in four-hour rotation. So you're there either for four hours, for eight hours, or for 12 hours. And if the helicopter doesn't come, you've got three days' worth of uh, food and, uh, and a tent that's always there in case of bad weather. If the helicopter doesn't come. Yeah, I also think he has massively underestimated my capacity for complaining. <laughs> I don't think I would stop complaining. I'm already thinking of complaining and I've not even got there yet. <laughs> I mean, it's it's dramatic, isn't it? I mean, that, what an experience. Just incredible. And you don't think you know, he's this, an expert in his field and yet he has to train to be in this environment at all. It's a, oh, an yeah. amazing situation. It, it is quite incredible. Now, connecting Professor Smith's archaeological work in Antarctica with communist ideology might seem like a stretch. <laughs> it does seem like a stretch, Ryan. Let's see where you go. <laughs> but there are some thematic elements. <laughs> For example, communism is grounded in Karl Marx's theory that material things shape the development of a society. What that basically means is that societies are not changed by thoughts and ideas, but by real life things, things like money and tools and resources. And so Marx turned to history to study how people in the past had organised their material things, their work and their resources. And in looking at the past, Marx thought that he could better understand how societies develop and why significant changes have happened over the years. Anyway, this is all a long way of saying that communists took a great interest in history and archaeology. They encouraged collaboration between archaeologists, geologists, biologists and others because they understood that by working together, these researchers could develop comprehensive insights into the historical past. And that is where we find some parallels between the values of communism and the collaborative nature of Antarctic expeditions. Because researchers like Professor Smith, they work interdependently, share resources, information, expertise, and they rely on one another to survive the harsh climate. There is no class distinction or hierarchy. In the context of their expedition, every member of the team contributes equally, regardless of their status or their position back home. Theirs is a collective search-seeking to further humanity's knowledge, not serve private interests. And that is something that Karl Marx would have approved of. Nice link. Again, you're doing ever so well, Ryan, I must say. Side note, though... <laughs> <laughs> it is worth noting that not all historical and archaeological research was encouraged or accepted by communist leaders. <laughs> in fact, there have been instances where historical findings contradicted or challenged the official ideology and were therefore suppressed, with the scholars then finding themselves censored or persecuted. Like, for example, archaeologist Vasily Ravdonikas, who had his research into the ancient Scythian civilizations banned because it contradicted the Marxist view of a unified historical progression. He was exiled to a labour camp where he spent 12 years in Siberian conditions before returning to work as an archaeologist after Stalin's death in 1953. And he wasn't alone. In fact, any archaeologist who focused on prehistory, like Professor Smith, rather than confirming Marx's social evolution, they all faced censorship or loss of an academic position. And I guess that's where the similarities end with Professor Smith's work in Antarctica and communism, because as far as I know, he hasn't spent any time in a Siberian gulag. 
For which we can only be grateful because uh, he sounds like an awfully nice chap. He's a super nice chap. Yeah, I've, I've uh, interview envy. <laughs> <laughs> Okay, Pete. So up next, I asked Professor Smith to tell me about some of his more notable work on Antarctica. And he shared this one story with me about his first discovery. I was actually there first time as a geologist uh, working on um, logging sections through the Permatrassic boundary. And on a a place called Graphite Peak, the helicopter had landed in a a little coal or a little flat area high on the mountain. And we were working just on that sort of plateau area. And not 20 meters from where the helicopter landed, I found a small fossil in the rock, which um, I recognized as a curled up skeleton. So I tried to start to excavate it with my geological pick. And, And of course, not realizing that the rock is actually frozen, but I was desperate to recover this thing. So I did actually bring it out in probably a hundred or so pieces, but I made sure that I could fit them all together. You mark the joints and all that. Anyway, when that all got joined together, I brought it back to Cape Town to the fossil laboratory where they prepare out all the rock from the bone. And it turned out to be an animal called Trinaxodon. Trinaxodon means three cusped or three pointed teeth. It's the size and shape of a mongoose. It has a long tail and a pointed nose and the uh, teeth are very sharp and probably a small insectivore uh, or it would prey on small animals. It wasn't a herbivore, but it is very uh, intriguing in that this is the very sort of first signs of these reptiles evolving towards the mammal-like condition in that Trinaxodon has different types of teeth, back teeth and canines and incisors, as it also has a more developed bony secondary palate inside its mouth so it could separate its breathing from its eating and thus become more efficient and almost certainly was becoming warm-blooded if not properly controlled its core body temperature. And it's exactly the same genus as we get in the main Karoo Basin here in South Africa, but not just the same genus, it's exactly the same species as well. So that really brought home to me that the fact that at this time in the early Triassic, animals were walking, breeding continuously between the South African part of Gondwana and that part in Antarctica. There was absolutely no doubt in my mind that there was migration to and from these two parts of the continent. And this was an excellent example of that. Can I just say that Professor Smith has an open invitation to join my competitive jigsaw puzzling team. Uh, the I <laughs> broke it up into a hundred pieces, but yeah, I just marked the edges so I could assemble it again. <laughs> Casually <laughs> throwing that away as if it was something that everybody does. <laughs> it's incredible, isn't it? How about that? I, he didn't say how he got the fossil out of the rock. He said that the rock was frozen, but I can only imagine a banana is the only tool uh, that would... the only thing that fits, isn't it? It's the only thing that makes sense. <laughs> Frozen banana, hammering away at it vigorously. (laughs) So anyway, here you go. So this is Professor Smith describing his first fossil discovery, a mongoose-sized insectivore that migrated from parts of Pangaea to Antarctica during the Triassic. Well, it's this migration that reminded me of the expansion of communism across various regions in the 20th century. Of course it did. Of course it did. It was the first thing I thought of. So as we've said, communism's origins trace back to the Communist Manifesto in 1848. 
but it was the radical, revolutionary faction of the Russian Social Democratic Labour Party, known as the Bolsheviks, led by Vladimir Lenin, who successfully overthrew the Russian government in 1917. They seized power and, under Lenin's leadership, became the Communist Party of the Soviet Union, establishing themselves as the world's first socialist state. Well, even in a time without social media, 24-7 news, word got around about the success of the Bolsheviks pretty quickly, and the Russian proof of concept became an inspiration to communist revolutionaries all over the world. There was now a model for how to structure their own society. And best of all, the communist leadership in the USSR actively supported the adoption of other nations taking up the communist cause. In the early years after the Russian Revolution, Lenin saw the benefit in supporting the spread of communism worldwide. In fact, he made it a priority. Revolutionary movements around the world received funding, weapons, advisors, training. Uh, one estimate puts the amount spent by the USSR, from the start to the end of the Cold War, somewhere between 10 and 20 billion US dollars in trying to spread communism through various forms of aid and support. Uh, the point is that the migration of communism was a key policy and priority, and it worked. The Soviet Union was the catalyst for the spread of communism around the globe, from multiple countries in Eastern Europe to China, North Korea, Vietnam, Cuba, even parts of Africa adopted socialist principles. And the similarities between the migration of communism and Professor Smith's little creature there don't end there, because just like the Triassic creature, communism also migrated to Antarctica with the USSR's arrival in 1950 when they first tried to lay claim to the continent. But unlike the little creature though, they were not quite so successful, with Russia today serving as something more of a consulting member of the Antarctica Treaty. Yeah, it's a lot like that famous speech that Lenin gave where he says that uh, communism is not unlike a Triassic era mongoose-sized insectivore. I was going to quote that, but I thought that was just too easy. Too straightforward. Too, too on the nose. Yeah. <laughs> it's just like a Triassic insectivore. Everyone wondered what he was talking about. It was a legendary speech. <laughs> he knew. Excellent stuff, Ryan. What else have you got for me? I'm gripped. Have you got more Roger business? Oh, I've got loads of Roger business. Let's have it. Okay, so I asked Professor Smith about other fossils that he's uncovered, and he told me about a very notable one. So I found uh, many. I mean, I'd guess in the hundred or so, but one particular one was it was impressive. It was an excavation that uh, they were doing for a dinosaur known as Cryolophosaurus, and they had been working in this area on and off for 20 years, and they invited me up there just to log a, a section. And uh, while I was doing that, uh, I came across a skeleton in the rock, and it was right there at the place where they would sit and have their lunch. And it'd be sitting above their head for 20 years there, and they hadn't spotted it. So that was a real moment for me. And they then excavated that specimen, and it's now on display in Chicago. And they nicknamed it Jolly Roger. That was great. <laughs> I love that. We've been hunting for this for 20 years. Yes, yeah, there. It's right there. <laughs> it's just look up, guys. Head. Look up, guys. Yes, <laughs> how about that? So this is a fossil that he found, I, I guess, just literally stumbled upon. <laughs> <laughs> 
picture a golden retriever style brontosaurus. I want cutest one. Cutest little thing I mean, this ever. This is Flintstones territory now, isn't it? It really is. It's the cutest thing ever. And as he said, it's on display in the Antarctic Dinosaurs Exhibition in the Field Museum in Chicago. So if you're near there or you're going to be in Chicago at any point, do go check out his juvenile sauropodomorph. Absolutely. <laughs> Absolutely. But he also mentioned that until his new find receives an official scientific name, the nickname that they all gave it was Jolly Roger. Named after him, of course. Of course. That's obviously a great nickname, right? But for our purposes, it's also a useful link. <laughs> <laughs> useful and desperate link. Between Antarctica, <laughs> the Triassic, and communism. So I'm sure we're all familiar with the Jolly Roger, right? Absolutely. It's the, name, it's the name given to the infamous flag used by pirates. Black background with a white skull and crossbones in the centre. Well, that's where we have our connection with communism. But not because some people believe that the origin of the name the Jolly Roger originates from an English corruption of the French words le Jolly Rouge, meaning lovely red. Oh, my lovely red. <laughs> because French privateers use red flags. And red, of course, is the colour of communism. But not that, but because the Jolly Roger is a symbol of piracy. It's a type of revolutionary rebellion. It opposes the established system and it rejects the established hierarchy, just like some aspects of communism. In fact, pirates and Marxists share a history of establishing stateless, classless societies where the means of production are collectively owned and controlled by the people. It's not a direct correlation, I admit, but there are some <laughs> clear parallels, right? Notably, the rejection of traditional capitalist economics in favour of their own alternative systems system. Basically, pirates did, and I guess still do, create their own rules, their own codes of conduct. And certainly in the past, they worked towards an idea of shared ownership and decision making. In the 18th century, for example, during the golden age of piracy, one of the most successful pirates of all was Bartholomew Roberts, also known as Black Bart. And he was well known for equally dividing plunder among the crew based on their role and their responsibilities. And that echoes the communist principle of from each according to his ability to each according to his needs. In both communism and piracy, decisions were made democratically, with everyone having an equal say in the governance of their society. Do you know what, Brian? I'm going to allow it. I think that was, uh, that was it started thin, but I think you pulled it off in the end there. <laughs> and so finally, I asked Professor Smith if he had anything to promote. And he told me that uh, he's too young to write books yet. <laughs> so a lot of his stuff <laughs> is academic journals. Uh, he said, but he does feature in an IMAX movie. Wow. Called Dinosaurs of Antarctica. And the IMAX film crew came out and joined them on his summer expedition out there during 2017 to 2018. And if you check it out, it's amazing. It's also in 3D. So you can wear the glasses, pop them on, go in to see the film. It's about 45 minutes long, I think. But uh, the CG is amazing. You see all of the creatures that we've been talking about moving around and stuff. It's fantastic. So uh, oh. do go try check that out if you can. That sounds amazing. I want to check that out. I because I can see myself being there and the camera pans and I'll go, oh, there's another one there. You've missed it. <laughs> Just like he did. I want to have my go. But there you go, Pete. You asked, you received communism in Antarctica during the Triassic. Well, 
Well, I have to say, Ryan, I think you pulled it out of the bag. Obviously, it was an impossible ask to find actual communism in the Triassic in the Antarctic, but you did a marvellous job of weaving together fascinating stuff and excellent guests. Thank you, Professor Roger. Yeah, thank you. And it was a real journey and I thoroughly enjoyed it. I think you did a marvellous job and I think you can rest easy having achieved your goals splendidly. I feel like there's very little left of Antarctica that I did not research or cover off in this. So. Yeah, let's let's <laughs> hope we don't Dursley. It's Antarctica. Oh dear, we've got problems. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> now, talking of Dursalations, Peter, the ears of the audience swivel in their sockets to you. I can hear them to... swiveling right now. <laughs> yeah. Uh, to hear what you're going to get for the next episode. So let's wheel it out, shall we? And uh, there we go. Beautiful little machine. God, I've missed this thing. It's been a while, hasn't it? Oh, it has been a while. A little bit okay. of dust accumulating. We need to brush that off. Right. Well, let's uh, let's not hang around. Let's get this thing going. Just crank it up. Okay, Peter, your place is Tropic of Cancer. Oh, that's good. That's a lot. That's a lot to work with. I'm not sure which one it is, but I've got a rough idea of kind of it's one of two things in my mind. Yeah. At least it's not topic of cancer. (laughs) (laughs) Bit of a downer for the next episode, that would be. Okay, and your time. And your time period is. Oh, okay. 800 to 900 CE. Early, but not unbearably early, I think. I'm, I'm remaining upbeat. Right, here we go. This is the good one, the topic. And your topic is... Between a rock and a hard place. Oh, okay. So your episode, Pete, is between a rock and a hard place in the Tropic of Cancer between the years of 800 to 900 CE. I'm going to say not a problem, but I'm not going to say it with a great deal of conviction, to be honest with you. Let's find out. All right. Good luck, comrade. Okay, so that's our show for this week. Thank you for listening, everyone. We got there in the end. Thank you for your patience. I think the wait was well worth it. Leave our pancreases alone. <laughs> if you would like to get in touch about any of the things we've talked about on the show, the communism, the Antarctic, or if you just want to say hello, you can reach out to us through our website at hhepodcast.com or email at Pete and Ryan at hhepodcast.com. That's right. We'd absolutely love to hear from you. And you never know, you might end up featured on a future show. And if you're on Mastodon, Instagram, Facebook, Twitter, or X, as it's now known, you can find us at HHE Podcast. That's right. And if you subscribe to those, you're going to get an alert every time we post extra content like facts we didn't use, photos from the show and other bits of meaty pemmican. Exactly. Pictures of the pemmican and probably pictures of your little creature as well, Ryan. Oh, and my and my national anthem. <laughs> <laughs> yes, if you, we'll try and make it a Eurovision entry as soon as we can. Uh, we will be back again soon with The Verdict. But until then, a huge thank you to you, Ryan Weir. And thank you to Professor Roger Smith. And thank you, Professor Roger Smith. You were amazingly interesting. And that's it. I guess all that's left to say is... You've been listening to... History Happened Everywhere. Hey, Pete. Hey, Ryan. I'm taking this. Oh, what are you doing? That's my phone. Uh, Sorry, comrade. It's my phone now, and you can't say fairer than that. 
I can. That's not fair at all. Of course it is, Pete, because I am a communist. What? From each according to their ability to each according to their need. And I needed a new phone. See? The system works. What about me? Well, what do you need? Well, I need my phone back, for one. Oh, well, here you go, then. Oh, thanks. Also, I need money? Nah, can't help you there, I'm afraid. Nah, but you said two each according to their need, and I need money. Yes, but I also said from each according to their ability, and I don't have the ability to give you any cash. Sorry, comrade, but I still need money. Well, of course you do. You're one of the oppressed workers, brother. We should rise up! Rise up? Against who? The boot-licking capitalist dogs in charge. The greedy elites. The bourgeoisie. But Ryan, this is our podcast. We are the bosses. Yeah, well, you know, down with us then. Right, so you're saying we should overthrow ourselves? Exactly. And then put us in charge? Yep. And why are we doing this? Well, to get a fair deal. And once we've got rid of us and then put us in charge, why do you think we'd give us a better deal? Couldn't we just keep it all for ourselves now we're in charge? Oh, you mean what if we can't be trusted? Exactly, comrade. Well, then we rise up again and kick ourselves out again. Right, so the whole process just keeps repeating itself? Exactly. That's why they call it a revolution. All right, then. Sounds good to me. Let's do it. Down with us. Down with us. Down with us. Vive la revolution! Colin. Ah, yes, Steve. How long are we going to keep humouring this guy? Professor Jones, what do you mean by humouring him? Well, you know, pretending all this is real. I'm not with you. Well, we're out here, right, at the literal ends of the Earth, the most remote place on the planet, thousands of feet up a mountain, looking for what he says is the remains of a mysterious creature like nothing we've ever seen before that lived millions and millions of years ago. Right. And this creature that apparently lived on this frozen mountaintop somehow got itself buried in the rock. Well, that is the gist of it, yeah. And the bones of this creature, if we find them, will also be made of rock. Um, yeah. Well, I mean, someone has to speak up, because this is nonsense. Archaeology is not nonsense, it's proven science. Whose science, Colin? The establishments? Well, the scientific establishment, yeah. And there it is, exactly the kind of blind elitism I'm talking about. We've been hoodwinked. By who? By big archaeology! Professor Jones, but he's so nice. That's exactly what he wants you to think. I mean, it's a distraction. They want us to keep looking at this rock and that rock instead of looking up at the people who rule over us. No, wait, wait. I think you've done it. Done what? That, that rock you pointed at. Yeah, yeah, look, there it is. I think that's exactly what we've been looking for. Look close, what, right what, here, I right don't here. see anything. No, what a little bit closer. Lean right about? in. No, I can't see no, what little... you're talking about. No, closer still. Get right up. Where? What? Colin, is everything okay? I heard a disturbance. Oh my god. Professor Jones. What is it? Whatever happened, Colin? It's Steve. I killed him. Whatever came over you? He was asking too many questions, sir. I see. Well... Be a good chap and bury him with the others, will you? And remember, Colin, big archaeology thanks you. Thank you, sir.